night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is author and breast cancer survivor, Laura Holmes Hayded. Laura's new book, or her book, actually the book has been out for a while, is called This is Cancer, Everything You Need to Know from the Waiting Room to the Bedroom. When Laura was 37 years old, she was diagnosed with stage four inflammatory breast cancer. Through her three-year treatment journey, she realized that there was so much more to a cancer diagnosis than the medical stuff. This is Cancer is the thoughtful, informative, and sometimes entertaining result for those who prefer their pathos with equal parts humor, reality, and a touch of flair. As a patient advocate, she has been a speaker at the American Cancer Society's Relay for Life and Discovery Gala events in San Francisco. She's a former cookbook editor at Simon & Schuster, whose work has appeared in TravelAndLeisure.com and numerous other publications. Welcome to the show. Uh, Nice to have you here, Laura. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, we had like, what, a minute and a half to talk before the uh, we actually got on the air. And you just, the, the one thing you said struck me, you thanked me for having you on the show. And then you said, you know what, people really don't want to talk about cancer or the C word even. And so it's difficult to get people to, I guess, talk honestly, I think. And that's what you point out in your book, to really talk about the real stuff, which is what your book is about. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you, I mean, the yeah, C word, you know, it's. Equal parts fear, um, and no one wants to talk about something that's so scary, I think, um, yet it's all around us. And I think the other thing is, and you were so young when you were diagnosed with cancer, 37 years old, young, mother, uh, probably a completely, you should describe it to us, but like a total surprise. I mean, why don't we start with that when you were first diagnosed? Of course, um, it was beyond shocking. Um, I was just finishing nursing our 14-month-old son. Um, I'd finished nursing around 10 months. Um, Our daughter was four, and I had just turned 37, and I had been, you know, perfectly healthy. I always say I ate my broccoli, I exercised, um, and then I started having pain in my left side and in my breast and my chest. Um, but I think as any, you know, busy person, especially a busy mom and women in general, you know, we, I just soldiered on um, until the pain was so intense that I went to the doctor. Um, my GP, she said, you probably have mastitis, but go to a breast surgeon just to be sure. And a week later, I went to the breast surgeon. She took one look, did an ultrasound biopsy and mammogram. And four days later, the day after Thanksgiving in 2012, I was told, I had stage four inflammatory breast cancer, um, 11 centimeter tumor in my left chest, and um, it had affected uh, 20 lymph nodes and a rib as well. So, what you, I mean, that kind of a diagnosis was terrifying, I would assume. And you, you know, I guess suddenly entered a new world. I think you described that in the book in a way. You know, this kind of the book, not kind of this, the before and after. So, what did you do? Yeah. What did you do when she said that? What, how, how did you feel? I mean, you are so immediately launched, just like you said, into this other world. And when I decided to write about it, I call it Cancerland because there's really no other way to describe entering this completely foreign world with its own language, its own social norms. Um, and you, know, you wake up and you're in it um, suddenly. And obviously I was completely terrified. I mean, that's really the emotion that 
uh, came, that carried me through that first week. Um, I was given between two and five years to live. It depended on the opinion um, of which doctor. And my first thought, honestly, though, was I, I'm not ready to go. I can't leave my kids. Um, and so then trying to replace those feelings of terror with, okay, what are we going to do? Let's, let's, let's start treatment. So how long does it take you to be able to do that? I mean, uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> so I, it's, I make it sound so easy, um, but yeah. I was so unprepared for the emotional part of a cancer diagnosis. Um, I felt so many emotions that completely surprised me. And I would say to completely accept what was happening, I mean, it took probably six months at least, um, and then to also accept that, my old life was gone and that it wouldn't just restart after treatment. That took years to understand. So you're never going to go back to the normal or what you considered normal before, right? I mean, that there's a new normal um, and six months. Yeah. yeah. And there's a new normal physically as well as mentally um, and emotionally. Obviously, you come out, you know, on the other side, um, with a whole new outlook. Um, obviously everyone learns different lessons and, and, um, deals with it in different ways. But, um, I think that letting go and saying, okay, this is a, a distinct chapter in my life and it's the after cancer. Hopefully everyone has that experience, but, um, the after cancer chapter is quite different obviously than, than before. You know, when you wrote this book or you say um, you wished you'd had your book to read to go through this cancer and you don't like to call it a journey, but a trip, a horrible trip, <laughs> but yeah. journeys. Yeah. Um, so what is it about your book, let's say, that's very different than the cancer, other books about cancer and uh, the, the stuff, as you say, you sit in the waiting room and there are pictures of, you know, people who have been diagnosed with cancer sipping tea with their oncologist or whatever. That's not what your book is about. No, as you point out, I, I wrote the book that I wanted to read. I wanted something that gave an honest perspective. I wanted real tips. I wanted to be informed. Um, I also wanted to laugh a little bit. Um, you have to bring laughter in at some point. Otherwise, it's just it's too hard to go month after month um, through the cancer experience without letting in a little bit of light. Um, and what really sets my book apart are those details. Um, there are so many little details that make a big difference in the quality of life for a patient, and they're not often brought up or discussed. Um, just little things like making sure you have a pillow in the car after a procedure, if you have a procedure on your chest or even um, putting one under your seat um, before you put the seat belt on to protect yourself. Um, little details like that that you know, get passed around from survivor or nurse, but no one, there's really no one place to look up all those details. But one of the other things you said too, this is more, uh, well, this is the emotional part, but you said um, you'll, you'll be surrounded by people, but sometimes you feel lonely and alone because um, people are, you know, people love you. They're there to support you, family and friends, but they don't always say the right thing. And, they're, and, and as you said, they're afraid to say things that might be 
negative. They try to, I, I don't want to, because I, I, I've have, unfortunately or whatever, I've had a lot of friends and family who've been diagnosed with cancer and people sort of tiptoe around even when they're trying to give you support. I think that's an excellent point. Um, the tiptoeing and the feeling as a patient of you, you expect certain things, you kind of expect emotions and people to say certain things, and when they don't say those things, it's very frustrating. Um, and you, it's so isolating as a patient because, as I said, you, people are around you, but more, more often they're around you physically and not really with you on your the emotional side of it. Um, and in terms of what people say to you, you know, of course they mean well, but the things that come out sometimes are, <laughs> I mean, you have to laugh. Um, and so what I always say is just, if you don't know what to say, just say, I don't know what to say. You know, send a, send a card and, and in the card say, I don't know what to say, but I'm here for you. Um, that alone can be so comforting. So well. Do they say that you have had to laugh at that things like don't say when you're with a friend who's been diagnosed with cancer uh, or a family, you know, someone in your family, what should you not say that sounds ridiculous or that sounded ridiculous to you? Like, oh, people said, um, particularly because um, I had breast cancer, um, things like, oh, well, at least you'll get a new pair of boobs at the end of it. And um this, you know, this is the new normal. And um, a lot of it'll be okay, you know, don't worry, things will work out, um, just, or also just the most basic, like, how are you in that really, you know, sad voice where yeah. they don't really want to know, um, you know, it's <laughs> like, the better way to say it is, what are you feeling right now? You know, that really shows yeah. that you're listening. Um, but again, you know, you can't fault them, they mean well, but um, I always say, just take a Take a breath before you, before you say the words, just to make sure that they're going to come out okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that I've I, I can uh, I've heard that I've had several of those comments like how are that how are you how yeah. are you yeah. Um, what about your spouse? Because that's very different in the relationship that you have or that you've with him. I mean, because then everything changes. Because I mean, you know, one of the things you've mentioned and um, that. You know, when you go through chemotherapy, that it, obviously, it, the, the effect that it has on your body, but I, I didn't realize that if, that it affected you, in a, like, say, when you're young, sexually, that it could affect you for not just while you're having chemo or a few months afterwards, but for years afterwards. So that has to have a, yeah. It's another part of the cancer experience. You you can't even imagine that it will affect you know, things in the bedroom, so to speak. Um, I mean, with your spouse, your partner, it's so difficult. Obviously, you're launched into a different part of your relationship where they are your caregiver. Um, and luckily, I had other people to help out. But if, if, your, if your partner is your sole caregiver, the stress of that is enormous, um, obviously. And as if you have something that goes on and on, obviously, the stress um, takes a toll because you don't have, you're not in a situation to keep up intimacy and other parts of, a, you know, a normal relationship. So that can be very challenging. And I, we really benefited from seeing a counselor. Um, I can't say that enough. I think that's so important to um, make 
make that a priority um, and try to do something every week that has nothing to do with cancer, even if you just go to the movies or, you know, grab some coffee and hold hands, you know, try to keep up something of a normal element of a relationship. Yeah, I think, well, for the first thing you said, going to a counselor probably should be the first thing on an oncologist list to tell you to do that, that that's part of the treatment, that's part of the plan, or part, you know, so that it gives people permission to do that who maybe wouldn't do that, go to counseling ordinarily or would be afraid to do that. Um, yeah. Yes, I, um, I found out while I was writing the book, um, speaking to a lot of oncologists, that actually one of the first um, prescriptions they often write to someone diagnosed with cancer is an antidepressant um, because obviously people are overwhelmed. Um, you know, the the emotional state is you have to you have to treat the emotional state as well. And now, fortunately, a lot of oncology centers also have licensed social workers and um, you know whole patient teams that can help you um, with the emotional mental side of it. And I. Um, I started seeing a therapist almost within the first week, and it helped enormously. I would imagine that you know cancer is a cancer diagnosis, a breast cancer diagnosis is is different for someone thirty seven as opposed to someone sixty seven or seventy seven. You're in a different stage of your life, and here you know, as you say, you just finished nursing your baby, you had a four year old, um, and you know, a, you're young, your husband's young, very different than his expectations maybe for being a caregiver, as you described, than for someone who's like, say, 70. And that, yes, know. I don't think anyone thinks in their 30s you're going to be um, taking care of your spouse. You know, you're going to face potentially um, losing your spouse. And uh, obviously you're in the midst of um, your career um, with the children, um, adding to that stress of not only what to say to them, but just their, their needs. Obviously, you know, I always say they need, still need to go to their ballet class. The, the lunches still need to be packed. Um, and that's when, that's the sort of issue that I really wanted to bring up in the book is these are what I call modern elements of cancer um, that more young people, unfortunately, between the ages of 20 and 39 are getting diagnosed. And so many of them have children. And we need to look at the patient, you know, obviously their physical being, but also what's going on when they leave the clinic. What kind of support do they need at home? Yeah, you know, you're talking about young children, and I have uh, do know, I have a friend, um, you know, how do your kids react to you? They don't necessarily react in the way you would think. I mean, when, you're, if, when your hair falls out and you've had chemotherapy, it can be scary to them, frightening. Uh, they don't want to bring their friends into the house. These are, you know, because they're, they're embarrassed. I mean, there are all those kinds of issues, I would imagine. Oh, I was so, I look back, I was so naive about what my daughter, who was almost about four and a half um, at the time, about her reactions. And I remember so clearly um, choosing to shave my head. My hair was falling out, and I just thought, I'm just going to shave my head. My husband's bald. So I thought, you know, it'll make it easier <laughs> to have two bald parents. Like, we'll yeah. make a joke out of it. Um, and I came back that afternoon. She came back from school, and I, you know, put on a smile and she looked at me and covered her eyes and wouldn't look at me for a full day after that. And it was, 
Oh, I mean, I, it still gets me every time I think about it. Um, just those moments. And, you know, as a parent, I, you feel so unprepared. You feel, I felt tremendous guilt, um, and I didn't know what to say. And then it, it, that's, again, when I recommend, you know, seeking help um, to get the language about what to tell kids, um, because obviously you don't want to tell them too much about a diagnosis, depending on their age, but you don't want to tell them too little, um, because they hear the whispers. You know, I always say they're little little people with big ears, um, so you want to really plan for what you're going to tell them, and, and be prepared for reactions that are, you know, all over all over the map. What about other survivors? I mean, I, I know uh, people who want to be with other survivors and others who don't want to be with other survivors. They want to kind of detach. They don't want to be a part of the cancer community. They, so they kind of stay away. What, what's your, you know, experience, I guess? I think, obviously, it's a very personal choice. Um, I feel that it depends on how you participated in a group, you know, whether you were in a support group um, throughout your treatment, if, if you tend to be a more social person anyway. Um, in my case, I was in a clinical drug trial, so I was really alone. I didn't, you don't meet anyone in a trial, you know, you're, um, you're very isolated. And then I didn't have time to, to go to a support group. So it took me a while to kind of get in um, to the breast cancer community. And then once I was feeling better, I can say I definitely embrace um, going to conferences and other things, but it's emotionally very hard. Um, and that's the other part of it you have to think about is hearing other stories. Um, it's a lot. And, and I was surprised by how difficult it was. Yeah. So it's, 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 uh, I guess it's a very complex Arena. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, there are just so many different kinds of issues, as you say, de- depending on your family, your own personality, the age of your kids, um, all of that. And it's and obviously how you respond is unique to each each um, family. What about friends like that you had before you were diagnosed with cancer? Did you lose any of those friends, or were they not able to go through this the, the trip with you? It's such a great point. Um, I always say cancer clears things out. You're either in or you're out, and it becomes um, clear very quickly. And I, I was shocked. I, one of my own bridesmaids from my wedding, I never heard from her. And I heard from her about a year into treatment. And I realized now it was because she had almost lost another one of her best friends um, to breast cancer. And she just literally couldn't, you know, wasn't capable of of being there for me. Um, And I understood that. And I think what cancer taught me is I can understand and I'm more forgiving. But at the same time, you know, you just see who shows up and I, you'll be surprised. I had total strangers who showed up for me who were kinder than people I had known for, you know, my entire life. So it can be a complete surprise. You don't, you know, I think with one of their chapters, um, something about expecting, knowing, or you don't know what to expect, you know, that, uh, as you say, you don't know who is going to show up for you. Uh, yeah. What about, yeah. Now here's, and I keep going back to you were young, 37, still young, <laughs> but uh, 
like your body image, all of that, you know, how you look and, and not just your hair and your whole body and your breasts and your, I mean, how did you deal with it? Because that's a huge issue. I mean, people say, well, I'm just happy to be alive, but yes, I'm happy to be alive. But also, you know, I have a whole um, image of myself and my body and how I connect with people. So how is that or how is that? It's ongoing. Oh, I really appreciate you bringing that up. I love <laughs> that phrase. I say it all the time. I'm happy to be alive, but yeah. um, dot, dot, dot. And, and as patients and survivors, we need to be able to say, you know, this still bothers me. You know, this is, this is a side effect and let's talk about it. Um, I was so surprised by what bothered me. For example, I thought losing my hair would be traumatic and that actually wasn't traumatic. I thought, oh, you know, having the mastectomy, if that's what it takes, I'm, I'm fine. I don't define myself by my body image. But that moment when the bandages were unwrapped um, was one of the worst moments of the entire time. Just seeing your body so radically changed um, it's it's unbelievable and I think um, having empathy and understanding to women and not treating it as just you know how many people just refer to it as a boob job um, and a mastectomy is not the same as a boob job and your not only the physical discomfort but just um, obviously how you look and then your choices for reconstruction and how um, you choose to move forward um, in that regard. Um, you know, in my case, I was so young, I thought, okay, I don't think I'm ready to go without reconstruction. I, as much as I didn't want more pain, I thought, you know what, I want to be in bathing suits and, and in the pool with the kids. You know, I want to kind of try to do as many normal things as I can. And so that's what made me choose reconstruction with saline implants. Um, but then the implants have to be swapped out every 10 years. So, you know, you have to prepare for that. So, um, it, you know, it's just a long way of saying uh, your body image is affected um, whether you think it will be or not. You know, the, 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 I'm using the word disfiguring when you first see it, I would imagine, um, that, as you say, it's a, it's a shock. And it's not like just, yeah, getting your boots yeah, enhanced I mean, or, yeah. It's nothing you can prepare for, even with, you know, quote, the best surgeons. Um, And what I would just add, I know you were asking me too about um, body image, back to that, just with my husband, who, again, I never thought I would feel uncomfortable or not sexy with my own husband, who, you know, I'd known for so long. And that was so shocking to me, is how I felt I didn't feel beautiful, you know, it's took so many months and so many tears to really to, to even take my shirt off in front of him. And I think, you know, it's important to talk about because you could have the, the best partner in the world, but um, it's, you know, there might be some moments where you, you feel very uncomfortable around them after the surgery. And how did he feel too? Because that's the, you know, your, your partner. I mean, you know, he, or, or he may have the best intentions and yet you still feel uh, and, and be supportive and, 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 but you still don't feel it necessarily. Or, you know, if you can just talk a, maybe a little bit about how you perceived, how, how was he? I mean, cause obviously yeah. he had his own. Yeah. 
Yes, um, and that's, you know, the guilt of the patient of saying, oh, I, you know, want to be with my partner, but I'm physically or emotionally unable to. Um, and, and he was so great and so patient and obviously, you know, said all the right things in terms of he's a beautiful, you know, regardless. Um, but it's, it's just this primal feeling of um, not only adjusting physically that your partner is often afraid to touch you and hurt you, um, but not knowing exactly what to say. Um, and I don't mean to sound like a poster child for therapy, but I, I can't say it enough. You know, going to a couple's therapist really helped us um, because there were often times where we couldn't say the things to each other that needed to be said. Um, and it was just easier to sit on a couch and talk to a neutral party and kind of get those feelings out um, uh, and oftentimes, too, we wrote things down, like wrote letters to each other, and that kind of eased the embarrassment of sitting face-to-face or, you know, lying in bed saying these things that no one wants to discuss. You know, the theme that keeps coming back as we're, you know, as we're talking really with everybody, all the people that you're connected to is this fear of not knowing what to say or feeling that you have to say the, have to say the right thing. And there really is no right thing, except if you're just honest with your feelings, uh, whether you're in, you know, whether it's your partner and you're talking, what we've been, you know, talking about how, uh, your sex life or it's your friends wanting to just give you comfort. But that whole thing about that fear of not knowing what to say, I guess, is uh, something that just sort of permeates the whole thing, the cancer diagnosis. Um, would you agree? Oh, I think it's, it's yeah. a wonderful summary of the experience. And I think so many of us are uncomfortable with silence. Um, so many of us you know, feel the need to fill um, a space with chatter and I would just say, you know, sometimes it's so nice just to sit. It was so wonderful to sit with someone who I knew, you know, loved and cared about me so much and would just sit by my bed or sit next to me during a chemo treatment and just be, you know, and just knowing that they were next to me was enough um, and nothing else needed to be said. You know, we only have a couple minutes left, and I had a lot more questions to ask you, but I kind of, (laughs) I want to, you know, in terms of just, this is more like having to do with doctors and staff, and, you know, uh, if you can say it in a minute, but like the experience with them, I assume there's teams of, well, there's a team, but people that maybe be good doctors, but bad personalities, but they're part of the team, and how does that work in terms of having to, you know, taking this... Uh, getting treatment. Um, how was that for you? Oh, it was quite uh, yet another lesson um, landing in cancer land, um, realizing that I didn't know before that you, know, you can have this excellent medical team, but they might not ask about your kids. They don't necessarily you know, want to know your favorite color. Like that's, they're not there to be your friends. They, are, they should be empathetic, obviously, but their job is to heal your body. And so making sure that you're, you're not kind of putting your stuff on them and letting them do the physical job um, is very important. And yet, you know, knowing that if you do not like a doctor or someone in their t- on their team, if you have a visceral reaction, if you don't feel, 
cared for, you need to speak up, and then you can say, I don't, I want to switch doctors. Um, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. And um, as a patient, you need to remember, this is your body at the end of the day, and you need to participate in those decisions. Um, I think we're often very much rushed through the medical system, and you know, you think of the questions later, you're like, oh, I should have make your list of questions, get ready to ask them, don't let them rush you off. Um, and, you know, again, just participate in the discussion of your own body and your treatment. Right. I mean, it's been great talking to you today. We have 30 seconds left. So <laughs> I we want people to go out and get your book, This is Cancer, Everything You Need to Know, From the Waiting Room to the Bedroom, Laura Holmes Hey, Dad, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, such a pleasure. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Susan Blum, MD, MPH, Uh, assistant clinical professor, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and author of Healing Arthritis, your three-step guide to conquering arthritis naturally. Arthritis is the most common cause of disability in the world, greater than back pain and heart disease. Until now, the only option for arthritis sufferers has been conventional immune-suppressing pain medications to mask the symptoms. Dr. Susan Blum considers the whole person and addresses underlying causes of arthritis, offering relief and healing with a science-based drug-free plan to eliminate the disease naturally. She serves on the Dr. Oz Show Medical Advisory Board and has appeared on Fox 5 News, ABC News, and is quoted in Real Simple, Harper's Bazaar, and Red Book. Welcome to the show. It's nice to have you on, Dr. Blum. Thank you so much for having me. I think the thing that stands out for me and when I was talking to several of my colleagues about you being on the show today was the statistic or the statement that arthritis is the most common cause of disability in the world greater than back pain and heart disease, which I mentioned. Uh, I had no idea that that was the case. I'm not sure that many people do know that. Uh, So if we're we're talking about arthritis worldwide, Millions and millions of people suffer yes. from this. Yeah, uh, let's kind of discuss some of those statistics. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, and actually, yes, absolutely. And I think that part of the issue, I think, is that most of us just think it's this inevitable thing that people have. It's like this background thing, like, oh yeah, I have arthritis, and there's not, and and there's a, so there's a whole spectrum. There are people who um, have mild arthritis, and then there are people who are truly disabled by this, and I think that people don't realize the amount of disability, and disability is everything from, you know, not being able to function in your job to also just reporting a disability because you can't, you know, exercise anymore like you used to. It's actually affecting your ability to function in your life, and, you know, as we age, I think the goal for most of us is to be able to function and enjoy our lives as long as we can, right? So, Disability is not something that we want to end up with. Um, what about? Real, yeah, yeah I just want to say maybe you're going to 
address that now. I'm interrupting you, but you're talking about as we age, uh, we may suffer from arthritis either mildly or severely. But aren't there different kinds of arthritis in terms of like yes. this? Let's talk it's, like you can have it when you're very young as well. Right. So let's just sort of go circle back then to sort of the beginning of understanding what arthritis is and the different kinds of arthritis. I think in general... And then we'll talk about the, the sort of kind, so the sort of in general, right? Well, let's start with that kind of the aging kind of arthritis. That's the one that's generally called osteoarthritis. Osteoarthritis is sort of what's always been thought of as the wear and tear, you know, kind of uh, arthritis. That's the one people assume they're going to get because there's natural wear and tear as you get older. After an injury, you know, you might end up with arthritis in your knee after you hurt your knee. And so... This has um, always been thought of as being inevitable, and the interesting thing also is that the statistics, the other thing, interesting statistics that I, I really find so compelling is that 45 to 60, uh, 40, people age 45 to 65, 35, 30%, sorry about that, 30% of people age 45 to 65, that's middle age, have doctor-diagnosed arthritis. They've been to their doctor and they were diagnosed, and so... There's all these people, it's not just about getting older, right? And so, but osteoarthritis has typically been thought of that way, and so I'm going to debunk that and say even osteoarthritis, the wear and tear condition is happening in younger and younger people. And then you have the other huge group of arthritis, which are the autoimmune inflammatory arthritis conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. And actually, rheumatoid arthritis is the most common autoimmune disease. And so this is very common as well. And the autoimmune arthritis conditions tend to happen to people much younger. There's a whole group of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis or, you know, teenage, and even in young children now, the um, rates of having early and young, you know, arthritis has gone up in this kind of autoimmune arthritis group. And rheumatoid arthritis itself starts really picking up increase in prevalence after you turn 40. So this is definitely younger and younger as well. And we know we're in the middle of an an autoimmune epidemic in the younger age groups as well. And so we now have to, all these, you know, arthritis, so those are the two big categories that I really focus on in the book because those are the two sort of chronic, ongoing inflammatory arthritis, which is osteoarthritis and autoimmune arthritis, which includes rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and then also arthritis from other autoimmune conditions like lupus, like Sjogren's. You know, you can get arthritis with that too. In the book, I also go through, you know, there's other kinds of arthritis as well that are more like, for example, Lyme disease, right? Or other, you can get an infection and have arthritis, um, gout caused by uric acid crystals is also a, a metabolic kind of arthritis that you can get. Um, and so the most, other than the infection kind of kinds of arthritis, the point that's really I want everybody to get from listening for, to me today is that what the research is showing us that no matter what kind of chronic arthritis you have, the pain and inflammation that you feel and that you have in your joints is originating somewhere else in your body. The source of inflammation is somewhere else, for example, from the food you're eating, from your gut health, right? This whole gut arthritis connection is huge, and that's actually one of the stories that I really wanted to share with readers in this book and to share today is we're learning so much about the influence of your gut and the gut microbiome on the inflammation in your joints. And so the pain and swelling and inflammation and pain that you have in your joints, no matter what joints it it is in the body, that inflammation is starting somewhere else, and we need to work on the cause of the inflammation by treating your gut, 
by working on helping to change your diet, you know, to an anti-inflammatory diet. And if you do that, your joint pain will improve. But conventional wisdom or conventional medical treatment as of now doesn't do that. You're saying we they treat the the medical community treats the symptoms but they don't treat the root cause of the which is inflammation which comes from a different part of the body. You're that's, well, exa- for, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. You know, look, at the and I do want to and, and this gives me the opportunity to make the point that I'm not anti-medication. You know, when you're first diagnosed or when you're in a big flare, if you're in a lot of pain, you know, a lot of people end up on medication, and, and medication's really good for it. We call this downstream medicine. If you imagine a river, and a river starts in the mountains, it originates somewhere, right? And then it comes down, and it, and it and ends up in the ocean, right? And so all the way downstream is sort of where your symptoms are manifesting. And if you just treat your symptoms all the way downstream, it will help you feel better. And sometimes you need to do that, at least for now, right? Because, you know, I'm not anti-medicine is my point. So, but that's what modern medicine does. It really addresses the symptoms. And it's important. It has a role. However, functional medicine, the way that um, my field, so this is a specialty called functional medicine, and we approach complex chronic illness by looking upstream. Where are all those, where is it all coming from? What are the roots? You know, what's the origin of the inflammation? So we call it upstream medicine, and we look for those sources of inflammation. Now, a lot of times people come in to see me, they're on medication, especially people with rheumatoid arthritis, which if you're having severe pain and a lot of active flare or you're in very active rheumatoid arthritis, the concern always is that you're going to have a rapid damage to your joints, right? We don't want your joints to get damaged because then once they're damaged, it's hard to reverse that, right? You can't really reverse the damage to the joints. And so if you're, you know, in a, in a really um, active for, you know, inflammation uh, in this moment, you need to be on those medications to help keep the inflammation down. But what I'm saying is at the same time that you're on your medication and taking care of your symptoms, you can start working upstream on where the inflammation is coming from. And what will happen is over time as you work on those root causes, you'll be able to get off your medication. You know, this week I had a psoriatic arthritis patient come in to see me, and when she had first come in, she was in terrible arthritis pain in her hands, and she was on Otesla, which is a conventional medication. And, and her pain, she, in the first three months of working together, three to six months, her pain was completely gone. It was much better, and then it was really completely gone, six months. But this time she came in to see me, and we're about a year out of when she first came, and she says, she told me she tapered off her medication with her doctor, and she still has no pain. And so the medications have a role, and so I would never get on the radio and tell people, throw out your medication. You know, there's a way to, pro- to help sort of do both, and then once you don't need the medication anymore, then you can get off of it. Sort of like wearing crutches or having crutches while your legs are uh, broken leg is healing. Right? Okay, yes, that's a good way to think about it. Throw away yeah. the crutches, but you have a specific. Okay, so let's get into the specific plan because you have this this three step program. Yes. That, yeah. Okay. So maybe we start so, yeah. with the, the first step. I'm I'll a patient. With number I come one. Into your yeah. Office. So, I, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And so the three step program goes. It's um, the leaky gut diet for arthritis. So there's a food plan you always start with. I'll just give you the overview and then we'll do one by one. So it's, it's, a food, it's a jumpstart food plan so that you'll feel better right away. So it's an anti-inflammatory food plan. And then the second step, we go right into healing the gut. And that's a two-month core period of re- gut repair. And I explain all about 
the connection between the gut and arthritis and the different aspects of what's out of balance in the gut and then how to repair it. And then step three, which is really important, is I call it the finish what you started, you know, six-month program. And this is, um, this is really important, and I'm going to come back and make sure we have time to talk about that because steps one and step two are sort of the first few months of really your intensive, what I call the therapeutic part of the program where you're going to do a lot of roll up your sleeves, change your food, you know, work on healing your gut, and you're going to feel a lot better. The food plan is, we call it the leaky gut diet for arthritis because um, the, the issues that are going on, what's happening in the gut that causes arthritis is there's a condition called leaky gut. So let's just back up for a second. There's these hundred trillion bacteria that we know that live in our digestive tract. So we have small intestine and we have our large intestine and a hundred trillion bacteria live there and they're really important for helping us digest and absorb our food, but they are determine our levels of inflammation in the body and they help keep our intestinal lining strong. When there's damage to the intestinal lining, you end up with a condition called leaky gut and your bacteria that live in your digestive tract can zip out of the body, out of the intestines and into the bloodstream and end up in the joints triggering inflammation. And so there's this whole issue of health in the digestive tract that's really, really important. And But while you have this leaky gut, this, this sort of damage to your intestinal lining, the certain foods, the food, you'll be much more sensitive to food. The foods you eat also can slip out of the gut and into the body and trigger an immune reaction. And so that's why at the very beginning, to help you feel better right away, we always start with this thing called our leaky gut diet for arthritis, and it's a classic elimination diet where you remove a list of foods, but it's also teaching you how to eat a very anti-inflammatory food plan, which is about getting rid of the sugar, you know, and cleaning up the processed foods and just eating a lot more vegetables, some really simple guidelines, right, to follow. So we always start with food is step one. And then we move into step two, which is healing the gut. And then we end up in step three, which is the long-term recommendations for how to live your life for deeper work to improve the health of your gut microbiome. And this is really where the, um, the long-term work is, and this is where the lifestyle work is. And I really, um, th- and that's really, really important. And, um, and so I just think that I always like to mention that because you know, people really, a lot of my colleagues have these quick start programs that they do, um, which are only like 30 days, and everybody thinks they're going to be all better after some very quick start program. But at the end of the day, what I want people to really understand is that the gut is an ecosystem, and you really need to have a long-term plan for supporting your gut ecosystem. And the number one most influential thing on the gut is the food you're eating. How do you get people to change their diet? You know, from the social work perspective, that's a whole, obviously, psychological, emotional thing. People come in, you know, the statistics, I talk about it on the show all the time. We are, what, a third of us are obese, another third are overweight, uh, you know. So we're starting with that. When your patients come in, I imagine you have a lot of these people or, or a lot of patients who are, uh, you know, they're, if you, and you, most doctors don't. I find spend time asking you what you eat and how you eat and, uh, you know, and, and what your lifestyle is. So yours is like really a 180 from the usual kind of treatment that you're going to get for arthritis. I know, and, a, yeah. and actually food as medicine is so important. Yeah. I mean, look, I definitely have supplements that I recommend that people do that they're going to need to do 
for healing the gut, but at the, you know, temporarily. But for the, at the end of the day, I really try to teach people how to eat in a way that, that you can do it with food. So, yes, every new patient that comes into Blum Center sees the nutritionist. I have a health coach that works. We have a teaching kitchen. We have free cooking classes and pantry makeovers, and we really work very hard to support people in making the lifestyle changes. And, I, and I, so, I, yes, I do agree and I, uh, that it is a challenge. And so that's the language and how I speak to people in the book. And I really I appreciate that it's hard for people. And, but there are some simple, but here's the thing. What I, how I always try to approach it is, and this is for people listening, this is how you should think about this. Think about it like I, everybody can do an experiment. Everybody can do two weeks. I ask you to do at least two weeks of, being, of eating in a way that I'm suggesting. For two, you can plan it. You can decide to do it in a few weeks from now. But, it, but, it's always, but if I can engage everybody, which is really always my goal, and is to do this elimination diet, to do this leaky gut diet for two weeks, you're going to see how good you feel. So my goal is always to create what I call like an aha moment, right? If you try this, please just try it. Try it short term. And, and I promise you're going to see how good you can feel. And then after you do that food plan for a few weeks, you can reintroduce the foods one at a time and eat them again and see how you feel. So, for example, if you're talking about dairy, you take dairy out for three weeks, you know, even two weeks, let's say, but two to three weeks. I like to say three weeks. Three weeks is sort of the magic number. If you, can, if you take out a particular food for three weeks, after three weeks you eat it again and you see what happens. The idea is to help you learn about your body. Like everybody's different, right? And if I can help you create an aha moment to see exactly what that dairy is doing and how it makes you feel, you're more likely to be able to remove the dairy or limit it in your, in your life going forward. You see what I'm saying? So I really try to create a, a setup for people to really learn for themselves how they feel eating one way as opposed to the other way. Because you're right, just giving somebody a list of food is not going to help them. You really yeah. have to teach them, right? Yeah, you have to teach and they have to teach them. I think you just mentioned the key uh, sort of scenario. You have to be aware, aware of how all these foods are affecting your body and you have to take that's time right. to do that. Yeah, and that's really important. And also, that's, that's really how I present it is as an experiment. Just do this experiment with us. Learn how these foods help you feel. And then I promise you'll make your own choices and it won't feel like work. You know, you'll want to make these choices. But you practice what you preach, as I understand, because you yes, yourself, I do. yeah. So talk to us about that, because you were diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, and you yes. went through this process yourself. They're the same yeah, thing. Yeah, you- exactly, and that's why I know. And I've done this with people over many, many, many years, so I understand the ups and downs, and which is why I created that third step in the program of the. It's, I call it "Finish What You Started." Like, how are you going to live the rest of your life, and what does that look like? So for me, I, I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's. Um, oh gosh, that was almost 20 years ago, and that's how I first started at the same time that I was learning functional medicine. And so I really figured out for myself my triggers for the autoimmunity, which was I actually had mercury. I had a lot of metals, you know, mercury, high mercury levels, and my gut was in very bad shape. And so after about a year, my antibodies were gone. I did a lot of work on, you know, food, you know, did this whole elimination diet, and I actually discovered I had a whole bunch of foods that were a problem for me, and it was mostly uh, gluten, dairy, and corn. And so 
I really did, uh, for a very long time, I needed to be off of those foods. But I'll tell you now, you know, my antibodies are gone, and I'm, you know, and I'm generally very, I mean, I'm generally very healthy, but even myself, like a few years ago, I had a lot of stress. I had um, a couple of my kids went through some really rough times, and I had a lot of stress, and I ended up getting inflammation in one of my fingers. And so I, that's one of the other reasons I wrote the book, because I had this sort of arthritis experience for myself. And I realized that it was all because of all the stress and trauma that I had been going through for the you know, two years prior that damaged my gut again. And so even me, who kept eating in a generally really anti-inflammatory way for all these years, I also had a flare of inflammation, but it came into my body via trauma and stress. And, and, and through the gut, because the gut, the number one most important influence is food, and the second most important influence is stress. And so you have to be mindful of both. And so, yes, I walk my talk. And since two years ago when I had this aha and I said, okay, Susan, you know, what are you doing? The shoemaker has no shoes, right? Like, what are you doing? You need to, you know, pay more attention to yourself. I started meditating every day again. And for myself, I cleaned my food up to really get back to the basics. And I did a whole elimination diet again and got really clean, you know, really strict. And now I'm really, I'm actually really healthy and in good shape. I have no inflammation in my body. My gut's in good shape. But my rule of thumb for how I live is in my house, 90%, you know, every day, day in, day out, I do live a gluten, dairy, soy, and corn-free existence in my house. And, now, Bo, what know, about for the family? Because I know you have a husband and three boys. I have a husband. I have three yeah. boys. And most of, I have only one still living at home. Um, for them, yeah, no. I don't have any of that in the house. I mean, I have some corn chips the kids will, you know, that they'll eat sometimes. But the pastas I use are all gluten-free. It's like, why not? You know, there's really yummy quinoa pastas. And so, yeah, my whole house is, um, is, has none of that. We have all the substitutes. So we have coconut milks and almond milk and... So, yeah, I don't have, I think we have some cheese in the house. So my kids, my, my son and my husband will have some cheese sometimes. So I do keep cheese in the house. Um, but other than that, there's really no dairy and there's definitely no gluten. Um, when I have company over, I'll, I'll, I'll serve regular crackers, you know, but, but I, I have so many great alternatives. I really don't need it. Like this is just the way I've gotten used to it. And this is the thing people need to understand. Once you discover all your other foods that you bring in, that you learn to eat, and that it becomes part of your day-to-day-to-day in your house, you don't even think to eat the other stuff or get it, you know, and bring it into the house. But, you know, the neat thing um, is also that, for me, uh, you know, at some point, once you, the inflammation's gone and your gut is in good shape, I live by what I call the 90% rule. So I go out to dinner on Saturday nights and I eat whatever I want. You know, so this is not, I don't feel deprived. So if I go out or I go to a party or I go to a wedding, I, I eat, I'll eat the bread when I go out to dinner and I'll eat, um, you know, some cheese on something. And, you know, and I have to say, you know, for the most part, other than the wine is what makes me get, feel a little fuzzy the next day, it's uh, alcohol. I, I, I'm so clean, I think, that the alcohol is really hard for me to, I, can, I enjoy it when I'm drinking it, but the next day I definitely feel a little bit, um, you know, hung, uh, hung over from one glass of wine. But, but food-wise, you know, I find I can do that. You know, I can once or twice a week, you know, eat a little something that's not in my usual plan, and I'm okay. Yeah, so, so it's not I, an all-or-nothing thing. I mean, you don't have to be so rigid. It's not an all-or-nothing thing. Yeah. I, I have, right. We have only have three minutes left. I have a lot, I had a lot more questions to ask you, but I just got to, you know, I'm because con- I get sort of getting back to the family thing. Yes. So that you, this is the 
kind of eating habits that you introduced to your boys, two of them are out of the house now, do they carry this on, you know, the next generation <laughs> in their own house, their own apartments? Uh, how does that work? Yeah, That's my I know. last Isn't that funny? So, you know, years ago I read this book called Who Moved My Cheese? Do you remember, you know, that little tiny book? It's like, Who Moved My Cheese? And so I'm, I'm laughing because... I, I sort of woke up about eating this way. My kids are already older. Like, I have now a 29, 27, and 22-year-old. And so my oldest was about, you know, 13 or something when I changed the food in the house. And, you know, he was totally like, how could you do this to me, you know? My second son had, AD, had, had a pretty in good version of ADD when he was younger. So he actually did need, I did testing on him, and he needed to be gluten and dairy-free. It was hard. On, uh, he was maybe nine when I made the change. And so he, um, because he didn't want to be on medication, he was willing through middle school to change his food. So he became a more willing accomplice. And my youngest um, always, he was like five, so he just always learned to sort of eat this way. But I didn't control them when they were outside the house. This is just the way we ate in our house. What I'll say is now, my kids they are actually the, mo- the healthiest eaters for the most part. You know, my, they are when they are paying attention, but then they go out with their friends and they eat pizza, you know. So, you know, which is okay. And they sort of understand how food makes them feel. But all of my boys are very conscious. My oldest married a, woman, a young lady recently, and she is so health conscious, and she had stomach issues, so she stopped eating gluten and dairy for herself, and she feels so much better, so now that's the way they're eating in their house. So, you know, I, I think that... So you've um, done your job. Uh, you've done I've your done job, job with your patients yeah, and with your family. Uh, we have to say goodbyes. I mean, so I get... Oh, that's I recommend, too bad. Well, so, well this, is, yeah, this go, is really nice. Thank you. This was, and I want to mention your book again, because you got to go out and buy the book, because there is so much more to talk about and obviously so a lot much. more in the it's book. Really a very, thank you. It's such a big topic. It's all, it is all of that. And I just do want to say as we're closing, I tell a lot, the book is a storybook. I tell my stories. I tell the story of my mother with her osteoarthritis. I tell stories of my family. I tell stories of my patients. I wanted, this book more than my first book is a storybook. And I really wanted to have people really feel drawn in by that. So you can find someone in there and what, some things you can relate to. Um, the book is called Healing Arthritis. I have a dedicated book website called healingarthritisofthebook.com. And if you go there, I have all sorts of bonus materials and free downloads and all this cool stuff that you can go and learn more about the book and more about just approaching and treating arthritis. And, um, and yeah, it's just, it, it was really, uh, I loved writing it and I hope everybody enjoys reading it. Thank you so much, Dr. Susan Blom. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.